I will invite you to come on back, and as you do that, if you would uh, take your Bible, if you have one handy, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, as you know, last Sunday we returned to our ongoing study through Matthew's Gospel as Matt led us in a study of Matthew chapter 8, and so today we come into the next section. Um, of course, the, the sermon notes in your bulletin I know will be of help to you as we, as we move along here. It is so good for us to start the year together by opening God's Word. I hope that as you, uh, together with the rest of us, get into 2019 and get used to writing your last year with the teens, right? Um, I know. I hope that I hope that this will be a year uh, where you are immersed in Scripture and God's Word is just pouring through your veins. Matthew chapter nine. Some years ago, of course, in the uh, World War II days in England. As bombs fell on that country and people wondered if they were going to make it or not, a British theologian philosopher went to the airwaves with 15-minute daily radio spots to talk about things that matter. What do you say to people broadcast there in London as uh, in the 1940-1941, those terrible days as... Bombs destroyed parts of the city and, and uh, people died. What do you say to people on the radio? Well, C.S. Lewis was the man, and he talked to them 15 minutes a day about things that mattered. And, of course, 1940 or so, uh, theological liberalism was, uh, was rife. Fundamentalist modernist controversy wasn't that old. And the word of God was in question, the truth of its existence and the savior it teaches about. People doubted it all. So C.S. Lewis talked to them about the Bible. He talked to them about Jesus. He talked to them about eternal things. And those 15-minute those talks were distilled ultimately into a book. Uh, arguably one of his most important books, I think, called Mere Christianity. Some of you have appreciated that. It really began with 15-minute radio spots during World War II. Maybe you didn't know that. But I want to read to you one paragraph. I I suspect one of the best-known paragraphs in this book where he's talking about what Christians believe. He's just trying to distill it down. Just get it down there to where it's clear and understandable. What do Christians believe? And that's a section in this book. And he's going to be talking here in this little section about Jesus. Who was he? Who is he? And why does it matter? And um, this will lead us to our our study today, where we'll see the same topic just laid out here in the text. So listen to C.S. Lewis. He says this, Mere Christianity I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And of course, ever since Lewis wrote those and spoke those words, uh, that paragraph has been quoted or referenced in one way or another. Lord, liar, or lunatic, others would, would say, you really need to make a choice. His point well taken Jesus said some audacious things that if they were not true, he wasn't a very nice man. Well, we're going to come today to Matthew's gospel where the gospel writer is after really the same thing. He's wanting us to see and be convinced of who Jesus is. And let me just tell you why it matters today to us before we step into our study. All right. Every one of us comes here today with some element either in our lives or in the lives of those that we love, where there is an area of need or want or struggle or trouble or problem. We all come with those things. And let me tell you something. If you're going to bring those areas of need to a mere human for advice, let's just say good luck with that. But if you are going to bring those areas of struggle and problem to one who is God in the flesh, a redeemer par excellence, a true savior. Well, then now you're getting someplace. So it matters to us. It matters to us immensely who Jesus was and who he is. And that's what Matthew's gospel, this section is all about. I want to pray for us and then we'll kind of talk about the structure here of of what we're doing and why we're doing it this way. And then away we go. But join me, please, as we pray together. Our Father, it is so good to open the word of God together as a church family. This um, really most important of acts that we do together that binds us together uh, to come and to invite the spirit of God to use the word of God to shape our hearts and our affections to set the agenda for our lives. Our Father, how important that we do this week after week after week. Thank you for your telling us of its importance, this act of preaching and of hearing and responding, and you're inhabiting this moment as well by the Spirit of God. You're using your word. Thank you for this. This is not merely a, a human exercise, but the word of the living God. So, Father, together all of us come saying, our Father, would you teach me? Would you, would you show us? Would you break down those hard places that are in my heart and allow me to hear and then to love your truth and to respond to the Savior here presented? So, Father, we trust you for this, this time, this uh, morning in your word. Help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look with me at your study sheet, you see a couple elements of review that will help you remember where we have been, especially last week with Matt Ritchie. And then the little paragraph about today's text, Matthew 9, 1 to 34. Now, I want to say a couple things here about how we're doing this and why. You remember that last week, Matt Ritchie led us through all of chapter 8. 
And I mentioned to you when we began our study that in order to cover 28 chapters, really in a nine-month preaching window with uh, time out for Thanksgiving and Advent and things like that, means that in some areas you, you kind of take bigger sections. And let me tell you something. Uh, nowhere is that more important and, may I say, helpful than in the section that we're in right now. Uh, chapter 9, the text in front of us, 1 to 34, is made up of a number of little vignettes. Each of them uh, you could consider on its own merit, but they all fit under a common umbrella. And that, I think, is easier to see when you look at it all at once. If you, sometimes if you drill down and take them, you, you get more of the details one by one, but you can miss the bigger picture. Or we're going to have eight weeks in a row where I'm going to say, It's the same main theme as last week and the week before that and the week before that and the week before that. So, so I think for our purposes, this, this, um, this chapter does well as a larger unit. I want to say this also, if you study gospels and compare them one to another, as some of you do, you, you may, you may notice that the, the little paragraphs, little stories that are told here in Matthew nine show up in the other gospels in a little different order. Sometimes people get themselves all worked up about this. They go, well, now, wait a minute. In that gospel, it says it happened over here. In this gospel, it says it happened over here. What is one to do? And right, right away, someone will walk down the path of, well, clearly there's some errors in the text. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You're missing the point. And let me just tell you what the point is, and then we'll get after it, all right? Matthew is a skilled writer, and he has started, beginning of the book, telling us where Jesus came from. Basics of the birth of Jesus. Then he steps into letting us meet Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. We hear his words. You come to chapters 8 and 9, he has a common goal. And he's pulling together all kinds of material to to teach us about the identity and authority of Jesus. And so he's not trying to be chronological. Being chronological and missing is one thing. That's not his goal. He's not trying to be chronological. He's being thematically driven here. So that's really the reason, I, I believe, as to why some of the material uh, is, is presented in different order than in other Gospels. Chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew are on a common theme. And on your study sheet, then, authority and identity are those two little fill-ins. That's what he's after, the authority and identity of Jesus. We saw last week in our study that wonderful question that we took as our, as our sermon title last week, coming from Matthew 8, verse 27, the question of those folks in the boat, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Good question. We're going to see that theme continue, of course, into chapter 9. So if you look at your study sheet, then uh, you'll see that I have prepared my thoughts under three headings, all of which tie into the common theme of the authority identity of Jesus. He has authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to command. I'm using that word decidedly to command obedience. And he has authority to make all things new. And that's where we're going to go today. All right. So I want to read them in that order. So uh, chapter Nine, one through eight, and then a number of comments in this first heading. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Matthew 9, let's look together to the word of God. Matthew writes this, And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, 
he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and went home. And when the crowds saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to man. The ESV uses the word authority in verse six, authority in verse eight. I think underscoring our main, our main theme here today. Jesus in verse six tells us the reason why this paragraph is here. And it's in that really it's a purpose phrase, but that you may know uh, the ESV has it as one word. Uh, it is, it is in Greek one word, but it's really a purpose word. Sometimes it's, it's um, translated in order that for the purpose of it's a, it's a purpose word. Here's the reason why something is happening. And so Jesus tells us what this is all about, that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what's going on here. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Now, you and I have a certain responsibility to forgive other people when they offend us, step on our toes, irritate us, right? That opportunity is yours. It's a struggle sometimes. Depending on the offense, we explored that topic last year in our biblical counseling seminar, the whole issue of forgiveness. But forgiving from a divine standpoint, which is ultimately our biggest need, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the point of this paragraph. It's interesting. I'm going to comment on just several little things along the way here. Uh, If you look with me at verse 2, just to work through the little little story that's told, people bring to Jesus this paralytic lying on a bed. If you remember the story that's told in Luke's gospel in particular, uh, you may remember the manner in which they brought him. Matthew does not mention that at all. It's not part of his purpose. Do you remember this story? how, How do they bring him to Jesus? What happens? Yeah, through the roof. It's kind of cool. Apparently the house was full and standing room only. And the people brought bringing this paralyzed man who were not about to be deterred. They took a look at the crowd and went, okay, can't get there this way. And they went up on the roof, flat roof, pulled away the tiles and dropped them right in front. My goodness sakes, you got everybody's attention. Now, Matthew doesn't mention any of that. How come? How come? I believe it's because he wants to be a rifle, not a shotgun. Right? Does that translate to all the hunters in the room? Uh, a, a shotgun, bigger pattern, rifle, very narrow. Matthew is a rifle, not a shotgun here. He's after a specific point. He doesn't want you to get it lost. In. Yeah, but what about the roof? What a mess it would have made on the floor. I wonder who had to clean it. It's not about that. Uh, don't even go there. Some of you are concerned about the architecture. He doesn't care. He wants to help us focus in on the main point of the story, which is who can forgive sins but God alone. So forget about the roof. 
That's what Matthew's doing. I appreciate that. Bring him a paralytic. Jesus, we read in verse 2, he sees their faith. He sees their faith as evidenced by their behavior. Uh, I, I am noticing as I study through the gospel of Matthew, and of course it shows up all the way through the Bible, the seeing ability of God, how he sees. You see this over and over again, he sees. Certainly there's a physical function of that, but, but most of the time that it's mentioned in the Gospels, it's not about just the physical function of, well, there they are. He sees. He sees them. I know, man. Yeah. It's rough. Jesus sees them. I look at, across into next week's text in verse 36. You see it there as well. Of course, Jesus sees the crowds. Well, of course he does. Well, why do you say that? Well, Matthew's making a point of how he, he sees people. Jesus sees them. And of course, that takes you right back to Old Testament theology of, as well. You are a God who sees, right in the book of Genesis. Jesus sees their faith. He says to this young man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. What an amazing thing to say. Um, in, in a couple of weeks, a sermon in two weeks, um, I've been mulling this over for some weeks already, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to next week, too. Look forward to all of them. But in two weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, some, of the, some of the ways in which we sometimes feel, dare I say, disappointed by God. How we dare to do that. How we dare to feel it. Because he doesn't always do what we think he should do. Well, we're going to be there in the text as we look at John the Baptist's death in just a couple of weeks. In this case, now... When they're bringing the paralytic to Jesus, why are they bringing him? Well, they want his, his most important felt need to be addressed. They want Jesus to, to heal him. Right? His bigger need is something else. And I find, I find here a tie-in with what we read last week, the story of, of the... The, the disciples in the boat with Jesus. Remember this? They're in the boat with Jesus. What do they think their biggest need is? Oh, we're about to drown here. A little help would be great. Right? They're scared to death. There's waves breaking over the boat. And these, some of these experienced sailors are, are crying out in fear. They're, what they think their biggest need is. This is my point. It isn't their biggest need. In the boat, their biggest need is greater faith. They need to learn to trust Christ more than they do. They don't need to need to be there. They're safe already. They just don't know it. They're already in his hands, but they're scared to death. Well, sometimes we misunderstand our need, and I, I very much believe that our prayers reflect it. We often want forgiveness. Oh, sorry, forgiveness. We often want deliverance from a specific area of need more than we want more of God or, or to trust him more. We often want deliverance. When God says, I love you so much, I love you so much, today I will not deliver you from that. Because that is not your biggest need. I, I think that's, we'll be there in a couple of weeks. Stay with me. I, I, this is, man, that's, that's powerful stuff. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, my goodness. Okay, what's the answer to the question in verse 5? What is the answer or to that question? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Which is easier to say? Huh. Well, wait. Hold on. We're on both sides of this. Actually, I believe Jesus' point would be this. It's easier to say 
your sins are forgiven. Because nobody can see whether it happened or not. That's the harder thing to do. But it's also harder, impossible to see. Your sins are forgiven. How do you know if it happened or didn't? So Jesus then says, uh, he's done the most important thing. He's, your sins are forgiven. Now, he says, so that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm going to do the easier thing. I'm going to fix his immediate problem. Well, that's no problem. Hey, kid, get up. There, that wasn't hard at all. No. All of this happens so that you would know, don't miss the main point, that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you have any? Do you have any sins? To whom must you come? Christ. Nobody else. There is nowhere else for you to go but to come to Christ. You cannot earn it, forgiveness. You cannot work it off. You cannot do nice things, give money in a special way, be nice to puppies. There is nothing you can do on the face of this planet to get your sins forgiven other than to come to Christ. Jesus alone has authority on earth to forgive sins. And of course, all of that is because his death on the cross in your place. If you look at your study notes, uh, I mentioned here other gospel accounts report the desperation of the situation. Absolutely. Verses 9 to 13. Second, not only does Jesus has authority, have authority to forgive sins, he has authority to command, to command obedience. Verses 9 to 13. Let's look together then at this section as well. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Okay, who's writing the letter? Matthew, a tax collector, tax booth. Remember in our introduction to this book, we mentioned that this is not an honorable profession in Jesus' day. It was to be a traitor to your own people. It was to be a scoundrel. It was to be a scallywag. It was to be a thief. All of those things was to be a tax collector. So Matthew does not gloss over the fact of where he was when Jesus called him. He was in the tax booth. And when Jesus said, follow me, Matthew says, I got up and I followed him. I did. I highlight, of course, the words of Jesus. Uh, Jesus uses a command here. It's not an invitation. We'll comment more on that in a minute. It's not an invitation. It's not a recommendation. It's an order. It's an order from heaven. It's a command. Matthew, at this point, can, can obey or disobey, but he's not just saying, I have a suggestion for you. He's not giving him a suggestion. Okay, verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Luke's gospel includes two repentance in telling the same story. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I appreciate a couple of things here about this text. I appreciate the fact that Matthew does not minimize, that's a fill in here for you, does not minimize his past by glossing over his association with what are described here as tax collectors and sinners. It's at his house, by the way. It says the house. Uh, other texts will tell us it's his house. 
Well, these are his friends, his posses, his small groups, so to speak, <laughs> tax collectors and sinners. He's got them over. Well, he doesn't gloss over his past, but he also does not glory in those details. The focus in this paragraph is very much about Christ and his mercy. If you'll allow me just to get on a soapbox for a moment here, and you understand that in a figurative way, I'm not climbing on a box. But, but a soapbox for me would, would be this. Sometimes, and I, I understand it colloquially, if you ever say this, that's fine. I'm not going to pick on you, but, but you won't hear me say something like this. Sometimes in hearing a, a person who's got a very uh, uh, colorful past, and then they come to Christ, people will say, you need to go hear this person. They have a wonderful testimony. What do they mean by that? Well, they did some terrible things. Apparently, they went to, you know, drugs and alcohol and lived poorly and went to jail. I don't know what they did, but they did bad stuff, right? And they had a wonderful testimony. They came to Christ. And I'm thrilled when anybody comes to Christ. But, 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 let me say this. If you haven't been to jail, hooked on anything, it took just as much of the blood of Jesus to save you. And you have just as good a testimony as that person. Okay? You were just as gloriously saved whatever your past. So I, I, I always hesitate to say, what well, they have a wonderful testimony. Implication, maybe you don't. Wrong. You do. You do. It's interesting, as parents, all of us want our kids, in that, to use those terms, we want them all to have lousy testimonies, don't we? Uh, yeah, oh boy, they're going to be boring when they grow up. Uh, didn't do anything. Never, right? <laughs> I digress. I won't go there. Man, these things that jump into your brain. No, no, no. The point of this paragraph is the glory of, of Jesus in calling Matthew to himself. And Matthew neither minimizes his past nor glories in it. He says, this is where I was. Here's what I was doing. Jesus called me and I followed him. I think that's really, really good. And so I just encourage all of us, however it is that you came to Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior, you have a wonderful testimony and it's about the mercy of God toward you. It's about Christ. It's about what he did to save you. You don't have to go out and sin a whole lot to get a better testimony. That's what I'm saying. All right? So don't do that. Well, Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. And I, I understand invitations. I do. Not against them. I love them and, and all of that. But I just think it's interesting to me that, that, that sometimes our terms... Um, fit our culture. I don't know how to put it any other way than that. Uh, we, we tend to like to believe that we have the reins. The, the right to decide is all in us. It's all up to us. So invitations and suggestions suit us well. Send me an invitation. I will decline or accept it on my own. I decide. And I just, I just think that the Bible sometimes uses other language like commands. Um, and I give you a couple other references, just for examples, if you wonder about that. First Timothy 1, 1, 1 Timothy 1, 12, 1 Timothy 2, 7. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God, our Savior. How about that? God commanded. He ordered me to be an apostle. I say, I, I, who am I to argue with God? And so he did that. Well, I think it's interesting here. He said to him, it's an order. Follow me wasn't just something for him to consider. I have a suggestion. It might improve your life. That's not what he does. Jesus looks at Matthew and says, get up, leave that place. Follow me now. Matthew gets up, follows him now. Okay, don't worry. I'm not against invitations. I'm just saying there's a command from heaven. 
Jesus didn't issue a suggestion. It's an order. And by the way, when he orders you to follow him too, as, as he has, repent, Jesus says. Repent and believe the gospel. That's a command from heaven too. And if you decide no, you haven't simply declined a suggestion. You have said no to a command from God. Did you know that? For all of our, I have the right to decides. Uh, oh, you have the right, all right, I suppose. But let's not forget, you're saying no to God and his order to you. These are things to think about. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. He has authority to command obedience. Verses 14 to 34. I want to just, just explain that before I read that whole section. Jesus has authority to make all things new. I mentioned that I like the fact that these are all together, all these little paragraphs that kind of make up this section, because what you're going to see as I read all of this is that Jesus heals the sick, raises the dead, casts out a demon, gives sight to the blind, gives a little parable about new things and the importance of new things being new wine, new wineskins, and so on. He has authority to make all things new. My mind goes right away to the book of Revelation. In that that chapter, Revelation 21, where we read, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, no more pain or suffering and so on. That that wonderful paragraph. In verse 5, right on the heels of how, uh, how heaven is described, right on the heels of that, you have the words of Jesus saying, Behold, I make all things new. I make all things new. That is, those things that attend to this broken and fallen world, Jesus says, oh, listen to me. I will make it all new. And Revelation 21 looks ahead to that day. We mentioned in our previous studies, Matt mentioned it last week in chapter 8, that these these activities of Jesus, these healings and raising the dead and so on, it's an inbreaking of the kingdom of God, looking forward to another day when there's a kingdom and eternity. It's a glimpse into what the future is for all who are children of God. Do you like the sounds of healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing those who are unclean? Do you like the sounds of that? Well, man, make sure you're part of family of God by trusting Christ as your savior, because that's what the future looks like. So think under this heading, the authority of Jesus to make all things new. I want to start reading at verse 14 then. The disciples of John then came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the, or the, for the patch tears away from the garment and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the wines or the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins. And so both are preserved. Well, he was saying these things to them. Behold, a ruler came and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus rose and followed her with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Do you think she'd prayed about it? 12 years, 12 years. Heaven is silent. That's what we'll talk about in two weeks. 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. 
Jesus turned and what's it say? Seeing her. I love that. Seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Oh, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Instantly, the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the ruler's house, saw the flute players in the crowd. Those are professional mourners, by the way, making a commotion. He said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they, they laughed at him. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose and the report of this went throughout all that district. As Jesus was, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us. Son of David, they'd read 2 Samuel 7, right? When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And of course, with that phrase, tension continues to build. It will ultimately end up with Jesus on the cross. So all these little stories, all these little vignettes come together under this heading of Jesus making all things new. In verse um, verse 33, there is a similar expression to what you see back in verse 6. In verse 33, the crowd marvels. In verse 6, the crowds see these things. And the ESV says they were afraid. I think the NIV says they were in awe. Actually, that's a little too weak. Uh, this, this, this really is about fear. It's properly, may I say, properly about fear. It should be about fear. It should be about... Uh, have you ever been in a situation where you were aware, you were like in over your head? Come on, like all the time. Well, this is a moment right here where the crowd see this person who is lying on a bed paralyzed. They see him get up and walk out the door. And if that doesn't get your attention to make you go, I am in the presence of something. I, I don't know what, I mean, they're afraid. They should be afraid. They're smart people. They fear. They fear. I like it. The crowd, verse 33, marvels. They see all of these things. Now, I put all this under the heading, Jesus has authority to make all things new, because I think all of these things, the healing of the sick, sight to the blind, the the lady who is ceremonially unclean and has been for 12 years, Jesus, rather than becoming unclean himself as he touches her, she becomes clean. So he is the one who is the answer to all of these problems, a a, a glimpse into a kingdom age, a glimpse into heaven itself, authority to make all things new. Now, I mentioned at the beginning here that Matthew 8 and Matthew 9 together fit under this big heading, the identity and authority of Jesus. That's what Matthew is all about right here. We're going to step into chapters that, that are going to come, Uh, into places where Jesus is going to send out people and he's going to speak more. He's going to talk on, on the future and he's going to speak with authority. He's not just giving his opinion. 
I'm so glad Jesus speaks with authority. He has authority on earth to forgive sins. I am grateful that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Can I speak about me? Because I need, I need, I need forgiveness. How about you? Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins because he died on the cross in your place. He paid for your sin, rose from the dead, God in the flesh. Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. He has authority on earth to command you to follow him. Now, he has authority to issue that command. Jesus has authority to make all things new. And yes, there may be things like this lady waiting for 12 years, and maybe things you've been waiting for for 12 years. So we've mentioned it's a glimpse into the future. It's, a, it's, it's taken us down the road into Revelation 21.5, where Jesus says, it's now, it's now. I'm going to make all things new. Let me tell you something. <laughs> that's going to be an amazing day when anything that's broken is fixed. Everything that's bruised is healed. Everything that's unclean is clean. Everything that's, that's, that's not the way it ought to be is one day made right. Jesus says that day's coming, and indeed, he will bring it. Wow. We're going to remember Christ in communion. If you know Christ as your Savior, we're going to invite you to share with us in taking the little piece of bread and the cup. The bread, a reminder of the body of Jesus broken for us. The cup, a reminder of his shed blood. And as we do that, I'm giving you two words here I'd like you to think about. They are the words guilty and forgiven. Guilty and forgiven. And you see my two little statements down below. If you don't see a physical sickness as all that bad, that you don't need much of a healer, if you're not very thankful for when, you're, when you're well again, but simultaneously, if you don't see your sinfulness as all that bad, you don't need much of a savior, you're not that thankful when you're forgiven. I'd like you to think about guilty and forgiven. I'd like you to think about your own need before God. Your cleansing that only Christ can give. Maybe today's a day that some of you are going to be remembering a time in the past when you trusted Christ as your Savior. And again, you're going to say, Lord, thank you for that day. Might also be a day that someone present or listening later is going to say, you know what? I've been putting that off for for too long. Maybe as we start a new year together, maybe this is the day when I'm going to say yes to Christ for the first time. Maybe that's what you're going to do even now as we pray. God had been running from me for a long time. For a long time. Today, I'm going to trust Christ as my Savior. I want to pray for us. Those who are going to serve us, communion can come on down. And together, let's remember Jesus. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for this story in Matthew, this, this looking at the identity and authority of Jesus. So thankful for Matthew's gospel, for him telling us this. Our Father, across this room, we have people of all different places and backgrounds circumstances, every one of us in need of a Savior. And our Father, many, many, I'm I'm confident, have trusted Christ as their Savior here in this room, trusting Christ as their Savior now. Yet, Father, I also pray that any who hear me now or are listening later who have put that decision off or stiff-armed you, so to speak, ignored your command from heaven, Maybe today would be the day as they begin this new year that they'd say, today's the day I'm going to trust Christ. Oh God, I'm a sinner in need of salvation. Trust Christ as my savior from sin, Christ alone. 
Father, you hear those prayers. You're the God who cleanses through the shed blood of Jesus. Do that even now. Help us in these moments as we think about Jesus having come to seek and to save the lost. Guilty, forgiven. Thank you for all that we think about when it comes to Jesus. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Those who are going to serve are going to, first of all, distribute the pieces of bread. If you'd hold on to that portion until all are served, guys, come to the front. I'll say just a word. Together we'll remember Jesus. and forgiven mentioned that in the text everybody who comes to Jesus knows their need some came thinking they, their biggest need was to walk but every one of those who came knew they had a need every one of us has a need sometimes we are more aware of our problems they're big other issues of life sometimes we see those as our biggest need Always our biggest need is a right relationship with the God who made us. Always. That's our biggest need. I hope you know that today. I hope you've trusted Christ. This little piece of bread reminds us of his body broken for us. It took the blood of Christ, his body broken, for you to be forgiven. Let's remember him together. today we sang an old hymn come you come ye sinners poor and needy hope you know it there's a, a phrase there that always catches my attention uh, we sang if you tarry till you're better you will never come at all our tendency is to say I'll fix this I'll take care of this I got it I got it we don't have it we can fix our behavior maybe Maybe. Have you ever tried to fix your longings? Have you ever tried to fix your heart? How's that work? No, you need a savior, not just a method. You need a savior who can change you from the inside out. That's what Christ does. That's who Christ is. This little juice is a reminder of his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's remember him together. I'd like to pray for us. Would you stand with me, please, as we do that? Our Father, thank you so much for the morning. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that we look to the text and we see his true identity, son of God, son of man. We see him as God in the flesh, the Savior. Our Father, as we head out this week, I pray that each of us would have our hearts and our minds set on Christ this week, that our feet would be pointed toward him on the days that are easy and good, days that we look at and say, I think I did pretty well. And on the days that are just none of that, Lord, turn our feet, turn our feet and our hearts toward Christ. Thank you that you know us and love us. Thank you that you see us. Thank you for Christ today. We pray in his great name. Amen.